When you consider the tongue, I fear we can go a long way through life before we realize and reckon with the power that the tongue has to hurt and to maim and to destroy. And so we have to ask ourselves, have I reckoned with the destructive power of the tongue? Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. We're continuing a message we began last time called The Power of the Tongue. And Jonathan, some of us can be quick to say, well, it's just words. It doesn't really matter. But yet I hear you saying, and I think we hear James saying, no, those words do matter. And so we need to ask ourselves, do we truly understand the power that we have in our tongues? James is giving us a warning here in the third chapter of his letter that is so important and we so desperately need to hear. And, and, and the warning is simply this, the tongue can be an agent of extraordinary destruction. The imagery he uses, one of the images he uses is that of a forest fire. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire and the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. And I don't think we always believe that. Sometimes in retrospect, we realize it once we've done a whole lot of damage by something that we've said, or if we've been really hurt by something that someone else has said, and there's been fallout from that and and wreckage. But James wants to warn us, and then he wants to call us to a better way, to a, a godly use of our tongue. And that's a, that's a challenge. Certainly we need, as with all the challenges James brings us throughout this letter and the, throughout this series, it's a challenge we need. But I think as we reflect upon it, we realize how timely it is. It is a timely thing for sure. So let's not wait any longer. Let's get into the book of James, chapter 3, The Power of the Tongue. Here is Jonathan. Here in Ottawa, we live not far from a major shipping route. The St. Lawrence River is just 45 minutes or whatever down the road. The Great Lakes and St. Lawrence shipping route carries something like $100 billion worth of goods each year. And the ships that enable that movement of goods are big ships, huge, up to 740 feet in length, I gather. That's the maximum length that will get through the locks. And it's great fun, isn't it, to drive down the river and to catch sight of some of those great vessels as they are underway. But the ships of the Great Lakes are, of course, dwarfed by some of the great cargo ships that sail the open seas. I understand the largest cargo ship ever built was built in Japan, named the Seawise Giant greater in length than many skyscrapers are in height, measuring fully 1,500 feet long. The scale of these ships is breathtaking. The sheer bulk, the dimensions, the tonnage. But the wonder of a ship like that is actually that it is possible to steer it and to direct it. Through the winds and the waves, from port to port all around the world, these ships are controlled and these ships are guided. And as I reflected on this, it struck me, you know, the basic principles of navigating a ship on its journey haven't really changed all that much since James took up his pen to write his letter. He encourages us, verse 4, to stop and look at the ships. Pause as you go down to the St. Lawrence. Observe what's going on. Verse 4, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs tug on the wheel, and the rudder shifts position, and the mighty ship turns upon the seas. When you consider the tongue in the context of the human body, the whole body, it's it's a small thing, 
seemingly insignificant, often hidden from sight. It makes the occasional dramatic appearance when an ice cream cone needs to be consumed <laughs> or when a parent's back is turned and a child is in an impish frame of mind. But it's not a prominent member, I guess. And yet its capacity is immense. Verse 5, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Now, in a sense, the boast of the tongue is actually justified. Despite its size, it really can accomplish a great deal. And the illustration of the horse with the bit and bridle and the ship with its rudder, the illustrations point to the fact that the tongue has the capacity to guide the whole body. As the bit guides the horse, as the rudder guides the great ship, so the tongue sets the direction for the whole of life. Our words set the direction of our action. They are the outpouring of our emotion and our will and the thoughts of our heart. Our speech paves the way for all that will follow, for all that we will do, for all the relationships that we will make and the relationships we will break, for the decisions we will take and the consequences that will follow, for the promises we make and the commitments we undertake. The tongue speaks and the whole body, the whole person must follow. And as we just think about what James is saying, as we just let all that kind of sink in a little bit, we recognize more and more why it is that he places so much emphasis on the tongue on speech in his letter. Faith, it's got to issue in works. That's his kind of core principle in the letter. It's got to issue in fruit, in action, and the activity of our tongue, the words that it produces, this is front and center in James's mind of great importance. And it's why I think he says in verse 2 that if anyone actually manages not to stumble at all in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Friends, if we actually have our tongue under control, there is a real sense in which we have ourselves under control. The tongue is the bit and bridle of the human life. It is the rudder of the person. And if the tongue has this great power to guide the rest of our being, here's the, here's the question then, isn't it? Uh, have you got your tongue under control? Have I got my tongue under control? You, you see, I think we easily assume, don't we, that our words are small things. You know, they, they come and they go. We don't see them. We don't feel them in a tangible way. They're like the breath of the air. We imagine that they're peripheral or ephemeral, insignificant, unimportant. But James says, oh, no, they're, they're the foundation. They are the guide for everything else. And so, friends, we must ask ourselves, are we paying attention to what we are saying? Are you paying attention to what your tongue is doing? And am I? Have you got it under control? If the answer is no, I can tell you something about yourself. Even if I know nothing else about you, I know this. You don't have the rest of your life under control. The tongue has huge capacity to give direction. Next, the tongue has huge capacity to cause destruction. Second half of verse 5, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. About a year ago, I think, the Zog wildfire in Northern California burned through 56,000 acres, destroyed over 200 structures and claimed four lives. It all started when a pine tree fell on an electrical line, sparking a blaze in a season of dryness. Pacific Gas and Electric have recently been charged with manslaughter and other felonies for failing to cut down the tree when warned of the danger. A single spark, a great fire, 
we know how easily it happens. The spark may be small, but the fire could end up being immense. A single spark could come from our mouths that lights an immense fire of destruction. That's the point that James is making. And a word or two spoken in haste, spoken in, in, in anger, an unguarded slip, an uncontrolled outburst, an indiscretion, a barbed comet, it can break relationships, it can undermine a marriage, it can threaten a company, it can tear apart a church. It doesn't take much, does it? A small spark, great blaze. One of our nation's most prominent corporations is undergoing a very public boardroom row. At the moment, it's been all over the news. Billions of dollars in market value are at stake. A major merger and acquisitions deal hangs in the balance. Tens of thousands of jobs rely upon the health of the company. Millions of customers require their services. And if you read the reports, at the core of the crisis is this, a pocket dial of a cell phone and a few unguarded words overheard. Tiny spark, massive blaze. The fire begins with the mouse, mouth, verse 6. <laughs> the whole body is affected. The, the course of life is suddenly set, and how easily that happens. Word is spoken in haste, an ungodly word, an unwise word, and the direction of life is changed in an instant. Life is actually set on fire. And what James says at the end of verse 6 is truly fearful. The fire, the spark, issued from the mouth, it actually has its source in hell. And so the life transformed by this ungodly spark, it is now a light with a blaze that has its origin in the place of darkness. One of the core traditions you will know of the Olympic Games is for a torch to be lit on Mount Olympia in Greece, and then the torch alight with that flame is carried in a great relay from country to country. Unless, of course, it blows out, then they have to relight it. But anyway, before then, lighting the cauldron at the games itself. Now, what is James saying? He's saying that a life ruined and destroyed by words of ungodliness is a life that is actually aflame with a hellish fire. It's a life that carries hell's torch in this world. The fire of hell can be felt in the life that is set ablaze by words of unrighteousness. And without repentance and without saving faith, that life will be destined for the place of unrighteousness. That's what James is saying. And it's a fearful image he gives us. It's a terrifying thought. James is warning us here of the dangerous power and capacity of the tongue. And friends, it can destroy he wants us to recognize that. The consequences of our words, they can spin out of control so quickly. And the fire that burns in that destruction has its origin in a very ugly place. James warns us so strongly because he knows that the danger is a very, very real danger. He knows that we struggle, and don't we? We struggle to control the tongue. He's well aware of it. Verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. There is a company here in town that runs what amounts to a private reptile zoo. They travel all across North America, I gather, taking their snakes and lizards and other rather unsettling and slimy little creatures to drape over people's shoulders in different places, <laughs> delighting the children, mortifying the parents in equal measure. I don't exactly enjoy being too close to their uh, exhibits, but I would say this. 
they have managed to more or less tame some creatures that I thought were untamable. It's impressive. You know, it must be pretty hard to tame a python, but on some level it seems that it can be done. Even the most terrifying creatures in the world can be tamed to some extent. But while humanity may be able to tame the python, humanity simply cannot tame the tongue. It is, James says, a restless evil full of deadly poison. The tongue doesn't like to be inactive. It's a restless thing. It's eager to be active, and it has dangerous poison ever ready for delivery. The language here is unsettling even alarming. But James, he, he does want us to sit up and take notice. We may think that our tongue is pretty harmless, no one's listening, won't have an impact, but James says, oh no, it's dangerous. It has huge potential to cause pain and damage. And so as we hear this and receive this, we've got to ask ourselves whether we've really reckoned with the destructive power of our speech, each, each one of us. When young people first take to the driver's seat in the car, their teacher, whether it be a parent or, or, or someone else, their teacher, if they're responsible, will tell them that they are now holding the power of life and death in their hands as they hold the wheel. There is a reckoning that must take place with the power of the car and the grave responsibility attached to that. If someone learns to, to hunt, say, and first takes up a rifle, there is a moment of realization that must come that this weapon holds incredible power for harm. And there is, there, or at least there should be, a sobriety that comes from that realization and settles in. When it comes to the tongue, I fear we can go a long way through life before we have that moment of realization and reckoning. Before we realize and reckon with the power that the tongue has to hurt and to maim and to destroy. And so we have to ask ourselves, have I reckoned with the destructive power of the tongue? Have you and I learned to weigh our words and guard our tongue, knowing as the driver knows, as the hunter knows, that one moment of inattention, one moment of carelessness can permanently change the direction of our life and the lives of others around us? Perhaps as we hear these things and we begin to consider them, you're actually conscious of some words that you've spoken words that have caused harm, words that have caused damage, maybe far beyond anything you anticipated or intended, perhaps actually you are living day to day with tremendous regret over this very thing. For some among us, as we think about these things, the weight of that regret, perhaps the weight of that guilt, it is heavy upon you. James's teaching here will be a call for some of us to repent of particular things we've said or of patterns of speech, perhaps even that continue. And as we're conscious of our sin, it is a prompt for us to turn to the Lord for His forgiveness, a forgiveness that is available to us in the Lord Jesus through His death for us. And if we know Him, and if we trust Him, we can bring our guilt and we can bring our regret to Him, knowing that we have full forgiveness and true cleansing, complete freedom in Him. And, and maybe, friend, that is, just, that is the truth you need today. That is the truth you need to remember as the rebuke of the verses hits home. Brothers, you are here actually with a burden of guilt over things you've said, over words you've spoken, over damage that you've done. Maybe you're living in the midst of wreckage 
from things that have been said. But you have, at the same time, no assurance of forgiveness. You don't know the way out from under this. And if that's you, let me, let me invite you. Let me invite you to come and find forgiveness at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. That is where forgiveness can be found. At the foot of the cross where Jesus died to pay the price of our sin, to set us free from guilt. If you would come to him in simple trust, he will give you that freedom even today. That's the invitation of the gospel. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth and part of a message called The Power of the Tongue, part of our series, Doers of the Word, coming from James chapter 3 today. And we're going to get back to this message in just a moment. Well, if you ever miss a broadcast or you want to find out more about Jonathan and Encounter the Truth, I do hope you'll come and visit our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org. That's EncounterTheTruth.org. If you join us a little bit late, again, we're in James chapter 3. Back to the message. Here is Jonathan. The tongue has huge capacity to give direction, to cause destruction, and finally, to be divided, verse 9. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the image of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Most of us can be really very nice. We can be friendly. Some can be charming when we want to be. Most can say pleasant and kindly things when it suits us. Many of us here can probably use the evangelical lingo pretty well and sound thoroughly spiritual when the context is right. Most of us, I guess all of us, know that we are capable of saying some very different things when the situation is different, when certain people are out of earshot, when we have been provoked, when we are angry, when we have a particular agenda, when things have not gone our way. We know, don't we, how to bless our Lord and Father. We do it in song here in church. We've done it this morning. But with the very same tongue, one and the same, we know how to curse people who are made in his image, the men and women, the boys and girls he has created in his likeness. As I thought about this, the image came to mind. Actually, it's an image that the ethical philosopher Alistair McIntyre once used to illustrate a similar point the image of a fictional fine restaurant. You know, out in the dining room, it is all starched tablecloths and crystal chandeliers and decorum. And may I take your coat for you, madam? And would you like an appetizer today? And as soon as the server walks through the swinging door to the kitchen, it's a different context. It's loud voices. It's, where's the order for 72? That guy on 15, he's complaining again about his burnt steak. Hurry up with that. Hey, out of my way. It's as though we have our dining room voice, our tone of polite formality. And then we have our manner of speech for the kitchen out back. And it's not just that our speech is contextualized. That might be understandable. No, so often it is that our speech is radically inconsistent, terribly divided. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And James says to us very simply, my brothers, these things ought not to be 
so. And, you know, while we might agree with James in general terms, we might admit, you know, this is an ideal or not to be so. We might well be a little bit ashamed of our inconsistency of speech. But James now, he helps us further because he gives us a series of illustrations that point us to the fundamental reason why this ought not to be so, the fundamental reason that he's so concerned about all this, the fundamental reason it matters. Notice it with me, verse 11. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Does salt water and fresh water pour forth from the same spring in the ground? Of course not. Never could. It's either one or the other, and the source, it runs deep. Can a fig tree ever bear olives? No, that would be inconsistent with what it is. Ditto with the grapevine and figs. Won't happen, couldn't happen, isn't going to happen. Will you ever find fresh water if you go thirsty to a salt pond? I'm afraid you will not. That's simply not what it is. You're going to leave thirsty. Does the mouth of the Christian believer, the person of saving faith, the one filled with the Spirit of God, does the mouth of the Christian speak evil and poisonous words while at the same time blessing the Father above? Do you see where James is going here? I think we all see it. If we have been made new inside, if we have saving faith, if that is who we are, at our fundamental level, if that is our spiritual DNA, if the Spirit of God is alive within us and at work within us, then how can words of curse and of anger and of fiery destruction issue forth from our mouths? Now, James is not saying here that if our speech is imperfect, if we ever slip up, that we're not then believers. Remember verse 2. We need to hold on to this. I need to hold on to this for our comfort and our assurance. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. He knows it. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his own body. Okay, James, we stumble. We fall. We fail. We sin in this. But he's pointing us, isn't he, to the fundamental issue. If we have saving faith, if we belong to Jesus, if we have the Spirit of God within, then the spring and the source is one of pure water, of fresh water. Why is there salt water and fresh water coming out of one mouth? Why the division? Why the inconsistency? See, he's forcing us to reckon with our own speech. He is forcing us to ask the hard question, the uncomfortable question, as to whether our speech matches our claim to have faith, our claim to belong to Jesus. It's a searching question, friends. Searching because we all fail in this. Searching because it's all too easy to give vent to our anger and our frustration. Too easy to speak carelessly, crudely, unkindly, untruthfully. But James is reminding us here, our spiritual DNA has changed. If we belong to Jesus, the source of our life within is fresh and clean. We have been made new. And so, friends, with the help of the Spirit, won't we allow a godly tongue to guide and control our whole direction of life? Won't we guard ourselves against destructive speech? And won't we seek and strive with His help to be consistent in our speech, consistent in our praise of God and our truth 
and grace and love in speaking to those and all of those who have been made in his image. That is Jonathan Griffiths wrapping up our message, The Power of the Tongue, part of our series, Doers of the Word, taken from the book of James. You're listening to Encounter the Truth, and if you have missed any of the broadcasts in our series, I want to encourage you to come and listen online. Our website is EncounterTheTruth.org, and there you can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. You can also listen through the Encounter the Truth app. You'll find that at your app store. Simply search for Encounter the Truth, and that's a great way to connect to and listen to Jonathan's teaching whenever it fits your schedule. Again, you can listen through the app or the website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, thanks to our producer, Mark Breda. For Jonathan Griffiths, I'm Steve Hiller, and I hope you'll join us next time.